Let's bow our heads. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was invisible, what was visible. Hebrews chapter 11, verses one to three. Gracious and loving Father, you are the creator of the heavens and the earth. All things were made by you, and everything you created is good. For all your wondrous creations, we praise your holy name. We thank you in Jesus Christ, we have hope and new life. We long to be with you this day, and thank you with our voices, our hearts, and our lives. We thank you for blessing us with this community and the vision to become a more missional church. Help our pastors and leaders to continue to be sensitive to your Holy Spirit and discern your voice in where you're leading your church. Increase our faith to go out and bless the communities around us with confidence in the power of the gospel. Help us to be good stewards of the spiritual gifts, talents, and resources you have blessed us with and give generously and joyfully as we, as we receive from you. We pray that our impact groups would serve as a powerful means for us to experience and express the gospel within our community. May we encourage and support one another towards love and good deeds. Deepen our knowledge and understanding of who you are and who we are as your children. Father God, we pray for the children of our congregation. Grow them to know you personally and intimately. Teach them to love and serve others. May their lives be a blessing to this world. We pray for our brothers and sisters in India that your comfort and peace would be with them. Reveal to them your salvation. Let their hope be in Jesus alone. And may their passion be for the gospel. Give the December India Missions team confidence, courage, boldness to go to the unreached and unengaged people and complete the work you have set them to do. Protect them in places they go, give them unity for one another, and love the people of India. Through this, may the people of India know you, God, are real. As Elder Young delivers your message today, anoint him the power of your Holy Spirit and convict our hearts into action to reflect you each and every day. We commit everything to you, Lord, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, Deacon Sonia, for your prayers. We're glad that all of you can here join us today for this day of worship. Uh, Pastor Yah is away uh, this week with his family, and so I have the privilege to be able to share with all of you. It's been a while since I last spoke, uh, but it is, it is a privilege. I'm going to go right into the Word. Uh, let's see if we can make sure that everything's working. Oh, sorry, yeah, so before we go on, we'll just continue the tradition. Uh, for those of you, uh, if during the time of sharing, if you have any questions that pop up and come to mind, please feel free to text your questions to the number above, and then we'll be able to, and it is anonymous, and so we'll be able to field those questions. But I just want to let you know up front, uh, this is going to be a very simple message. Uh, I'm hoping it'll come with an added perspective but it won't be anything new and profound uh, the way that sometimes Pastor Yah brings to light when he goes into the time of exegesis of the word and he takes some of the words right from the scriptures and points out things that many of us may have uh, missed in terms of uh, reading the scripture passages. And we're also going to take a little bit of a, a time off from doing an exegesis of a scripture, but it's going to be more thematic uh, for this week. And we're going to open up with... Colossians chapter 1. I don't know if this is working. Okay. There we go. Okay. So the screen isn't up here, so I'm going to have to turn around uh, and take a look. But the passage is Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 to 12. So Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 to 12. So one of the letters that Paul had written. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, who also told us of your love in the spirit. All right, so it's popped up now. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continue to ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Okay. So we're going to, like I said, take a step back from an exegesis approach to a specific scripture passage. And although I read Colossians, I'm again going to use this as a springboard to tackle a topic that is brought to my attention many times by our own members and sometimes from people outside the church that I speak with uh, who are on a faith journey. And one of that question that comes up, and you may be asking yourself as well too, is how do I grow in my faith? You know, how do I grow in my faith so that I continue to draw closer to God and I know that I'm in his will and purpose and that I am fulfilling the calling that he has called me to. And as the scripture passage stated, uh, the focus is going to be bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, and being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. So one of the things you may have noticed with this particular passage is that Paul, instead of rebuking like we've been going through in 1 Corinthians, is he's writing a letter of thanksgiving and joy, seeing that this particular group of Christians in this church are really enjoying the fruit of all the good labor that had been done in terms of them hearing the gospel and living out the way that they have been taught as well too. I want to start off with three pillars that will help you or maybe three disciplines that I believe is going to help you in your faith walk. And as I mentioned to you before, it is nothing new. You've probably heard this many times over. But what I want to do today is add an, put an added perspective for you to consider and ask yourself, are these three the three pillars that's helping me grow in my faith today? And if they aren't, what are some of the steps I can do to ensure that I continue to grow? And the first one is personal devotion. If I can get this to work. There we go. All right. Personal devotion. So this is nothing new. So I remember when I first came to Christ in my teen years, I'm so grateful for a few things that my pastor had taught me. And he said, Young, one of the first things, you've made a commitment to follow Christ. What's the first thing you need to do? Well, you need to come to know him. And the best way to do that is to ensure that you have regular personal devotion. And in addition to this, and a part of your personal devotion is scripture memory. Because if you remember in Ephesians, what does Paul write about in terms of the word of God? The word of God is like the sword. And the sword is basically on the attack. You're not the shield, you're not the helmet, but the word is the sword that you can use so that in moments of trials and tribulations, temptations, the word becomes your power and the strength to ensure that you can fight off any attacks from Satan, any temptations, and you use that word to give you the strength that you need. So personal devotions is number one. Psalm 42 verses 1 to 2 writes, As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul plants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When can I go and meet with God? If we believe that our faith is not a religion, but a relationship with that living God, then our personal devotion is less of a religious activity than it is the longing to be in his presence. Just as the psalmist writes, my soul thirsts for God, the living God. How many of us remember 
that when we were younger, in our, in our teenage years, and we had the first crush, and we had the pangs of the teenage crush, or, or the early stages of developing a love relationship with somebody in our lives right now, no, much how, no matter how much work, no matter how tired you were, you would spend as much time as possible with that, living, with that person. So moments, you know, way before, time, uh, before the time of all the apps that we have, the texts that we have, you know, I remember picking up the phone and calling. And even no matter how late it was, just so that the last thing that you can do before you go to bed is to talk to that person. And if that person was with you in school, in high school or university, even if you had a class at 10 o'clock, you would prefer to go 9 o'clock in the morning just so you have an hour before class. And it's, although that's, we're talking more about a human love relationship, that's the kind of longing that the psalmist is writing about. Is that no matter how busy, no matter how you are taken up by other chores and responsibilities, that you have this longing for this God. And so when we talk about personal devotion, it is not a religious activity, but it is an intimate and love desire that you have to be with this living God whom you want to share moments with. And you know at those moments of devotion, that not only do you sing praises, but you can talk about the deepest things of your heart, the things that grieve you, the things that worry you, that anger you. God is not there just to hear you quote scripture passages and just talk about blissful things. But in the moment of devotion, he is there listening because he already knows what's in your heart. But he wants to, for you to voluntarily share that openly with him, that you can bring to light with him and share the deepest things. Just as it is very natural to carve out time with the person that we love, we prioritize our moments with God. And no other person, be it a loved one or other priorities, should take place or substitute or overshadow your commitment to spend that time one-on-one -on -one with God. So I also want to point out a few disciplines within that devotion time that I believe will help you to draw closer to him. The first one is meditation. And I know I've talked about this before. But I want to really clarify the difference between meditation that the Eastern religions talk about and the Christian meditation. And I'll touch upon that later on at the end. Richard Foster writes in his book, Celebration of Discipline, whereas the study of Scripture centers on exegesis, the meditation of Scripture centers on internalizing and personalizing the passage. Devotion is not the time to look into the history, to the original Greek or Hebrew word, or doing research behind the passage of the scriptures to give you more knowledge. And I'll touch upon that shortly after meditation. This is the actual time to take, to hear the voice of God. These books that you read, they may have been written 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago, but they weren't just historical books that were created just to be studied. But this and the book that we read, all these letters and all these different chapters were written for you and for me. In some Christian circles, the term rima is used. I don't know if you're familiar with the word rima. But rima basically means God's word spoken to you. And in that time of devotion is when we experience that rima. When we read about John 3.16, for God so loved the world, it isn't so much that the disciple John 2,000 years ago wrote this passage to remind us that he loved the world. But this passage was written for you. That he truly loves you. And when we read that passage in their time of devotion, do you hear the voice of God telling you? That you, John, James, Janice, Grace, whoever your name may be, that he truly loves you. And when you experience that moment and your heart melts, from being cold or having been hurt and you're healed, you notice and you experience that point of Rima. Rima is God's word spoken to you. It's God's voice asking you to really trust him in this area of life that you've been struggling with, having your op eyes open and realize that you, are, you have more to gain by obeying God than fighting and struggling against God. It's that moment when that that time when you don't want to experience or when you don't want to give in to his command of forgiveness and you choose to forgive and you experience the peace that transcends all understanding. And then that word passage then comes alive again. And it's like 
things that happen over and over again, that as you continue to experience God's word in your life, it leads to other words that come alive for you and becomes a building block for you to grow in your faith. It is the moment, for example, many of you heard, have my, already heard my story, when the words not just come alive metaphorically, but they come alive literally. Meditation takes time. It isn't something that you can try to do immediately, and it isn't something that you can rush through. So the time of personal devotion cannot be a moment where you feel like I've got this five, ten minutes, and I'm going to fill it up and get that guilt feeling off my chest to say I did my devotion for the day and to read through one or two chapters, say a quick word of prayer, and then get to the things that you believe are truly important. That is not devotion, and that is not meditation. That is a religious activity. So that personal devotion cannot be a time filler, and meditation isn't something they can do in that quick and shortness of time. It takes time to soak in the word and allowing the word to take root in your heart and in your mind. And as I mentioned to you before, unlike the Eastern meditation where you're supposed to empty your mind of everything and hit that reach, the point of nirvana, Christian meditation asks you to fill your mind with his word. And the meditation doesn't have to be a time where you have to read many, many uh, chapters or verses. It could quite honestly be one word or a one phrase that has stood out for you in your time of devotion. And that one word stands out for you and you wonder why God has chosen to make that word or phrase come to light. It is at that moment where we take that, we take out everything else, but we take that one passage and we let it soak. And we take some time just to let it sit and linger. And we let that word take root in our hearts. And at that moment, it may not come to light immediately. But when it takes root, that word will come to life at a time when you know God wants to speak to you. So meditation, devotion does take time. It is also one of the praise songs that reminds us when we take in that word during the time of devotion. It's an old song. I don't know if it's from the 90s or early 2000s. But it's a song that says, heal my heart and make it clean. Open up my eyes to the things unseen. Show me how to love like you have loved me. Break my heart for what breaks yours. It's because we have God's word and that word has taken root that we can understand who God is, his character, his love, his hurt. And so that when we look out into the world, when that word has taken root, that truly we see with God's eyes. Because his word has just filtered into our mind and in our hearts and so when we see things that hurt God and break his heart, it breaks ours. And we know at that moment that it is the time of devotion and meditation that has allowed us to draw closer and closer to who God is. Meditation is about God's word taking root and bearing the Spirit's fruit in our lives that it opens our eyes and our hearts to him and his character. And related to that is study. So I'm not in any way saying study is not important. That the only thing we need to do in our, in our time of devotion is to simply meditate. Because it becomes dangerous when that time of meditation is only about me. When we read the scriptures centered around me only. The word cannot be about how God speaks only to me. And it cannot only be about what can God do for me. For first and foremost, the scripture is about God and it is his story. That's what history is. It is his story. And in understanding his history, in the context of what he has done, the study of scriptures humbles us as we realize how really little we know him. When we focus on only how the scripture relates to me, the Bible recedes as another self-help book only. We see its significance only to how it can help me and build me up. We become the central focus of the Bible, which is in itself becomes a form of idolatry. And that's the danger if in a time of devotion, all we do is meditate and see what God is talking to me. 
Because in reality, we become the center of the scripture passage when really the scripture is centered about who God is. It is important to understand the history, the context, and background of the passage. And we build our knowledge, and not the knowledge that puffs up that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, but in the knowledge that brings us into humility as we understand his love and grace throughout history and for his creation. The focus is not on how much we know, but we understand how we will, we little we know him. We turn to those who have gone ahead of us and who through their research and experience shed light on the passages that we don't fully understand. And so part of my devotion is in addition to the Bible, I use handbooks like the Halley's Handbook. I sometimes have a laptop in front of me and I'll do research. And so the study is just as important as meditation. And I remember when I was in university reading a book written by J.I. Packard, Knowing God, in a seminal book, he wrote, once you become aware that the main business that you are here is to know him or know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. And it was in second year university, in reading this book, I realized, wow, I know a pretty good amount of information about God. But do I really know God? It was at that moment where I found myself falling on my knees, then falling prostrate and just crying because I thought I had made a commitment to know who God is. I had made a commitment to follow Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior since I was 15, 16 years old. And here I was six years into my faith and I recognized, wow, I really don't know who God is. I know a lot about him but I don't know who he is. And a big part of that study of scriptures is, come to, is to come to know him, and to know him is to love him. The third aspect of your devotions is prayer. And again, nothing new, but I want to add a different perspective as well too. So what is prayer? If someone who is not a Christian that you were speaking with at your school, at your workplace, and said, so I heard one of the practices and disciplines you guys have as Christians is prayer. So tell me, what, what is this prayer? Is this mumble jumble? Is it reciting the Lord's prayer? Is it just reading some stuff? What is prayer? And how would you respond to that, to that person? So if I can add one perspective, because, you know, a lot of us assume that prayer is just about supplication. And that is we come before God and we say prayer. We say things like, Lord, help me do this, help me do that. Forgive me of this, forgive me of that. Lord, give me guidance, give me wisdom. And it's about us making supplications to God in hope that he will hear our prayers. And yes, that is a really important aspect of prayer. And that is to come before him, to be fully transparent, to be vulnerable, to be honest of what's in our mind and our hearts. And it is. A supplication has a lot to do with prayer. But what if I told you that prayer is also as much about listening to God as it is about speaking to God. Because prayer is not a monologue. But at times you find yourselves becoming a monologue when the prayer time is spent just talking and telling him what is in our hearts and what we need. It is essentially a time of communion with your Father and knowing that you are in his presence. If meditation is about hearing God's voice through the scriptures, then prayer is just as much about responding to God's voice that you hear through Scripture. We thank him for the word, and we can also question him about the word. We, we ask, Lord, what does this mean? And Lord, how does this apply in my life and the world that you have created? And then we take some time to be still and listen. The passage of Scripture, Psalmist also writes, be still and know that I am God. And prayer is as much listening to who God is, what his will may be, what his purpose is, and what it may be. And does he respond to you when you ask, and you take that moment to be silent before God as part of your prayer? Does he respond with an impression, a subtle understanding or revelation, or something that was unsure in the past that becomes more clear? Does God respond by reminding you of something you had heard before from a fellow brother or sister in Christ or from a past message? 
Many times we fail to hear God because we fail to become, be still before God. And so we take the time to let God know what's in our hearts. But because of in our rush, we rush out. We miss God's response to that time of prayer. And so that devotion needs to include not just meditation and the study, but a moment of prayer and a moment to take time to hear God's response to you in your time of devotion. When Jesus wrote, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will and it shall be done for you. John chapter 15 verse 7. Do you notice the sequence of Jesus' prayer or his command to all of us? A, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will and it shall be done for you. So think about that. This encapsulates devotion. Abide in me. That is that moment when we come before God in our personal devotion. My words abide in you. This is a time of meditation and study. Ask whatever you will. The time of prayer. And it shall be done for you. But are you praying according to the will of God? According to his purpose? According to what you know of who God is? Or are you just pray, praying frivolously with the personal ambition and personal gain? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, denotes how important that it is that we be in his presence and in his word. And then we also pray and we know what to pray for because it isn't just based on my personal ambition or gain or desire. Our prayer is knowing God, knowing his word, and knowing his will. And so when we pray... We don't pray with doubt and uncertainty. We pray with confidence, knowing that we're responding to what God has told us. And we pray according to his will. And so that's why we need to understand that prayer is not just about asking God for this or that, but hearing God first before we move forward. And James, in his letter, reminds us, and he warns us. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive. Because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You ask with wrong motives. And so in that time of devotion, it is as much of hearing God's voice, aligning us, ourselves with who God is, coming to know him, and praying according to his will and purpose. How many times can we look back in our youth and discover that the prayers that we gave and we offered up to God had little to do with God and his kingdom work and everything to do with my own ambition. When I reflect back on my times of high school and university, and I'll confess, there are many times I came out to God and prayed not after having studied at all, that if he helps me pass this exam and get the marks that I need to get to my next course, that I will be his best servant, that I will be his best child. I remember negotiating with God in prayer and saying to him, Lord, you do this for me and I will be the best evangelist. I will be, I went to U of T, I will be up and down St. George, handing out four spiritual laws, I will be in class and I'll be evangelizing, but I know I didn't study, but you got to help me pass. That's one small example. But if we were to reflect back on many times we've prayed, how much of our prayers have been on selfish ambitions and gains and pleasures and less on what God's purpose and will may have been. Now, I'm not all discouraging all of you to come before God and to pray for the things that you do need Pray for those things that are around you. I mean, he commands us to do that as well too. But I'll, I'm here to encourage you and for you to consider that when you, when you do come before God and to pray to him, to take as much time as to listen and to re respond to his voice and will rather than jumping into things that you need. So that's the first aspect. There's so much more. And there's so many more things and in times of personal devotion that we can do. But I just want to focus on those three. 
Some other areas, I believe, on a personal level that you can do to help you grow in your faith is fasting. And that's something that I used to do uh, pretty re- uh, regularly in my 20s and 30s, something I've been really praying about in the last little while because I feel that God is calling me to uh, the fast on a regular basis. But in my earlier years, I used to fast every Wednesdays in my 20s and 30s. In the moment of fasting, you realize, A, how dependent you become on the things of this world like food and drink to sustain you. And you realize how little you depend on God. And so if you've never fasted before and you start experiencing hunger pains, you start realizing those are moments when, I, when my body has become so accustomed to just taking in food and not enough of who God is that we take these moments as a reminder to dig deeper into who he is. And Richard Foster writes, I want you to put a different perspective on fasting. Fasting is not abstaining from food, but it is feasting on God's presence. And so I didn't want to go into too much more details because I want to go into the second pillar of uh, spiritual growth. But I want you to just consider that about fasting as well too. And there's individual fasting and there's corporate fasting and nation fasting. And that will be a, a topic for a whole different discussion. Second aspect of uh, your growth that's really important that some people tend to neglect is corporate worship. If I were to ask you today, what do you look forward to when you come to church on Sundays? So take, take 30 seconds to think about it. And I've just asked you that question. When you were coming to church today, what were some things that you were for, uh, looking forward to? So I'm going to give you a 30 seconds answer while I take a sip here. <clears throat> The reason I wanted you to think about that is I'm hoping that some of your answers as you think about it, I might be able to uh, touch upon it uh, as I go through this. I want to remind you that worship is a verb. Yes, worship is a noun, but worship is also a verb. And one of the dictionary defines worship as an expression of reverence and adoration. So this moment that we've set aside, that we've carved out time every Sunday morning from 10.30, at least until noon. This one and a half hours that we spend here should be everything about expressing our reverence and adoration. And by the way, one and a half hours is not a very long time. I've been to worship services where one and a half hours was spent on just praise alone. And I remember going to this church, and Kathy and I visited this church many years ago. And I remember the praising and the clapping and the time of some reflection. And there was you know, moments when someone came up and shared some things. And I remember thinking after an hour and a half, I'm like, wow, that was cool how they integrated praise as part of the whole message, as part of the whole testimony time, everything. And I was getting ready to put my jacket on to leave. And then the person went, and now time for the message. It was an hour and a half of praise and adoration. And then, and I understood, someone told me later on that passage, the sermon is usually about an hour as well too. So for some people in some denominations, worship is half a day. It isn't an hour and a half. And the, and the excitement and the vibe that we got from that worship service, it was very contagious. We ended up, to be fully transparent, we ended up leaving a little early because we had to schedule certain things, but I didn't realize that praise alone was an hour and a half for this particular church. So by this definition alone, our Sunday service, our Sunday worship, is our expression of our reverence and adoration for God. And that's why our service is called Sunday worship. What if I told you that our Sunday corporate worship has nothing to do with these four items, which you might have thought about, maybe I'm totally off, but which you might have thought about. Worship isn't about how well a pastor preaches, believe it or not. Worship isn't about how moved you are by the praise team that's up here, whether it's one guitarist or a full band that's up here. And I know some people go to churches like Hillsong simply for the praise part. And they get excited about the contemporary songs that they bring out, the newest praise songs that come out, and they love just going there and they just go there for that purpose alone. Worship isn't about how organized children's ministry is. 
Because I can tell you so many people that jump from church to church based solely on as parents. How good a children's ministry is. Do they have good Sunday school teachers? Do they have good programs? Do they have enough volunteers I can leave my kids so I can come and focus on the message? And worship isn't about how well prepared our Sunday snacks are or how often we have potluck lunches or dinners and things of that nature. And yet we find Christians across, especially across North America that I've seen and I've heard, that they decide which church to attend based on these four main criteria. And so they go from one church and they give the church two or three weeks try and they say, yeah, the message is solid in this church. This particular pastor is very eloquent. He knows his or her stuff and they decide to stay. And as I mentioned to you before, some people stay because of the children's ministry. Some people stay because the small group is vibrant. And they end up basically going shopping. And here's the key difference between Sunday attendance and Sunday worship. Because I want to define for you what attend means. So attend, so when you're attending Sunday service, this is what you do. You show up. You visit. You appear a few weeks at a time to say, hey, how's it going? You frequent. And then the word haunt came up, which is kind of interesting. And you can read into that word what haunt means. And do you find yourself haunting churches? And you can use the whole metaphor of the haunt and being a ghost, being invisible, and what it means to float and all that kind of stuff. And you can make a whole sermon series around this as well too, I think. And the question I want to ask each and every one of you is, are you attending Sunday service? Or are you worshiping Sunday service? And if that is the attitude that we have towards Sunday worship, what I've, I've listed out here, it makes perfect sense why we would choose a church depending on the four questions that we had asked here before as well too. If we're here truly to worship God, then this day and time and this time is again has, if we're not here to worship God, has nothing to do with the four items that we had talked about before. It has everything to do with revering and giving our adoration to who God is. I'm not in any ways minimalizing how important it is to have a really good, as leaders in this church, to have good programs available. As pastor, y'all would prepare for the messages, for the praise team to come up and prepare their their time as well too so that each and every one of us can prepare ourselves throughout this whole worship time to meet God. I'm not in any ways minimizing that and to say that we're not going to have programs, we don't want our praise team to do the best that we can and that somehow some pastors should only come up here and wing things. That is not what I am saying. But as members of this congregation, I'm just challenging and asking each and every one of you, are you here to attend church or are you here to worship God? Let me end this topic of uh, worship with a conversation that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman. I want to remind you, if you remember, in, in the Gospel of John chapter 4, he goes into Samaria. Jesus is by the well. His disciples have gone into town to get food. And this Samaritan woman comes by. And Jesus says, I'm thirsty. Can you give me water? And they go into this dialogue. And this woman is surprised because she recognizes that Jesus is a Jew. And at that time, Jews did not in any way associate or talk with Samaritans. Samaritans were half-breeds. And so they go into a conversation, and the conversation leads to talking about worship. The Samaritan woman says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain, as he points to the mountain of Samaria, nor in Jerusalem, he points towards the city in the east. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. What I want to leave with you regarding worship is this question. What do you think Jesus meant when he said that the Father is looking for worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. Obviously, it has nothing to do with geography or location. He made that very clear. 
has nothing to do with this Tyndale sanctuary that we're part of. You being here has nothing to do with worship. All of us could have congregated at Young and Finch. Has nothing to do with location. So when he says the Father is working, the Father is spirit, but he is looking for worshipers who is worshiping in spirit and in truth. These are words that John purposely chose to record. There were thousands and millions of things that Jesus might have spoken. But when it came to worship, he chose these two words specifically. And the question is, are you here each Sunday worshiping in spirit and in truth? And what does that mean when Jesus says that's what he's looking for? Because remember, as we sit in our pews every Sunday, you are not the audience. Jesus is the audience. And he's looking at each and every one of us into our hearts and our minds. And he's saying, my father is looking for worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. And if Jesus were up here on this pulpit this morning asking you today, are you worshiping in spirit and in truth? Can you truthfully respond, Lord, I am here at this moment worshiping you in spirit and in truth. Now we turn to the, the final, the pillar, the third pillar in terms of our spiritual growth. The first one was personal devotion, the different disciplines within the personal devotions of meditation, study, prayer. I touched upon fasting a little bit. Second, the importance of corporate worship. Ah, let me be forward just quickly. I know of many uh, brothers and sisters that I've conversed with many times in my workplace who have chosen to worship in the comfort of the living room, and they tell me they worship by turning on the TV and they watch one of the TV evangelists, and that's their worship. And I remember challenging every one of them who shared with me that as well, is that are you experiencing the full corporate worship that God has called you to by sitting in the comfort of your living room? Now, I also want to be mindful and sympathetic. Some of them choose to do that today because they've been hurt by the church. Some of them admit, admittedly say that it's more convenient just to get up and not get dressed up and come to church, but they chose to do that. But the question I want to leave with you is, is that the corporate worship that, the, that Jesus is asking us to do? Now let me jump into public, ministry, ministry, uh, public service and ministry. Some of you may be thinking, okay, this is now where Elder Young comes up and does a pitch for volunteerism in the church. Because that's what this is all about when we talk about public uh, service and ministry. Because we need more uh, volunteers for Sunday school. We need more OMC members. We need more people to help with the welcoming. We need more people to get involved with other things and so, and, and so on and so on. And you're right, but you're not completely right. So it's a part of that. So the part of it will be about emphasizing of everyone in this congregation to serve in some capacity. I do believe that when uh, God has brought you into this fellowship, into this body, he has called you for a purpose. If you turn to Romans, you know, he talk, Paul talks about just because, you know, I'm, I'm, in, I'm a foot and I'm not the eye, that I'm not important. Just because I'm the ear and I'm not the body, I'm not important. Every one of you, I believe, is here, and believe it or not, you may think you're here because you just happen to choose this place to be here, but I do believe that God has called you here for a purpose. And yes, the number one purpose is to come and worship together in this body, but I do believe that he has called you here because you somehow fit into this body somehow in some capacity, which I don't know because I don't know enough about you, but God knows. And it's something that you may not have thought about, but maybe we can take time to contemplate and think about. Why has God called me into this particular fellowship over the one just across the street, over the one at the other side of town? It's because I do believe he has called you not to attend worship, not to attend and be a visitor, but to be an active body. So I do want to bring that to the forefront, be fully transparent, tell you all of that. But I also want to emphasize this public service and ministry is not just about serving in the church. We need to go beyond the four walls of this church. And I'm talking about being the salt and the light. And if you're going to grow in any way, we can grow in here by serving, making mistakes, being forgiven, experiencing grace among our members, among our brothers and sisters in Christ. But one of the ways your faith will be stretched, without a doubt, is if you take that faith outside the four walls of this church, outside your home, and you take that service ministry, uh, attitude into your workplace and into your schools and your families if some of your family members are not Christians. 
because and the reason that you are going to grow in that way is because I will guarantee you, you will experience a lot of pain and hurt and persecution. And as we say, not that I'm a bodybuilder, but as we say for those who work out in, uh, in the gym, no pain, no gain. And I can tell you, if you've never experienced some of the ridicule or the persecutions because you have certain beliefs, then you haven't probably expressed your faith in the public. And that from their point of view, you're just another person that happens to go to church every Sunday. And I'm not in any way suggesting we go back to the times of fire and brimstone where we take our you know, leather-bound Bible and we place it on our desk. And the minute someone says something, we become like a party pooper and say, well, the Bible says you can't do that, you can't do this. That is not what I'm suggesting at all whatsoever. But it is in some way and scope, some space and some time that we learn to serve beyond the four walls of this church. If we're evaluating our spiritual growth from the inside out, we have now moved from the time of personal devotion and the personal intimacy that we have, we have with uh, Jesus Christ in that moment alone to bringing that personal devotion every Sunday to church to actively worship. And now we move on to public service and ministry. If I were to ask you today what purpose God has created you for, to what purpose has God called you? Not, I'm not talking about this church, but about your creation for, for being who you are. To what purpose has God called you? What would be your answer today? Have you thought about that? What has God called you to be and to do? Think about that for about 30 seconds again. Because many of us don't take enough time to reflect on that. We just end up just following with the groove, with the momentum of the day. And our lives just become that repetitive, get up at 6 a.m. or 7 a.m., do our washroom tradition, eat our breakfast, get on the subway, hop on our car, go to work, and we got piles of work, emails to get back to, paperwork to complete, and we get back home at 5, 6 p.m., and we're exhausted, so we either order in or we cook something really quick, eat, we just kind of daze out about 8 o'clock in the evening. Maybe we flip on and then we go, oh, shoot, I forgot to do my devotions. Pick up the Bible really quick, read it, close it, and all of a sudden it's 10 o'clock, we go back to bed. Then we get up at 6 o'clock in the morning, we do our bathroom tradition, and then we just don't take enough time to reflect about, I've been born again. I've been born again. I was born as a child. I had no choice. I came into this earth. Because my mom and dad decided to have children. And here I am. But I have been born again. I made that choice. When God called me, I responded. I am born again. You are now living the second creation. You are living the second creation. Have you thought about, outside of your personal salvation, what God has called you to be? And the reason I'm asking you this question is because I think sometimes, including myself, that we've just fallen into the trap of living that daily, daily grunge, if I can call it that. And we sometimes live our lives missing our purpose and calling. Now, again, I'm not interested in just trying to fill the gaps in our ministry and our churches that we have and for you to simply step in because you feel guilty after this or because you feel like, okay, I can fill a need and to do that. That's not what I'm talking about. And I do want all of us to humbly serve and think about filling in the gaps that we have in our churches. But I'm also suggesting that we need to take a step back and to take some time to reflect on what we're doing in our daily lives, in our day in and day out, from morning to evening, what we do. And as you take some time to reflect on the life that God has given you, are you truly understanding the purpose that God has given you? I want to share with you a tale of two cities. Okay, not the, sh uh, not the book written from way back when, but this is a tale of two cities. I'm going to call them John and, uh, John and Jeff. They're not their real names, for the record. And I am not, in this illustration I'm sharing with you, I'm not suggesting that Jeff is somehow a really bad person, not, you know, a good Christian in any way. Because John, as Jeff, is also a sinner, as we all are. But John and Jeff have similar backgrounds, but they've taken two different roads. John and Jeff graduated from med school at U of T. John and Jeff made a commitment to follow Christ in their high school years. And they studied hard enough and well enough. They've gone to a great medical school. And John and Jeff both work in the ER department. 
John at one hospital, Jeff at another hospital. And they have children, and they have a pretty good life. For those of you who know how much doctors, I have a few clients who are doctors, and they've shared with me their income. And I'm like, wow, I didn't know Canadian doctors made so much money. I thought only American doctors made that much money. And then I, was, I found out about a decade ago, uh, the provincial government changed things so that even in Canada, you can make some pretty good income as a doctor. So John and Jeff are both doctors, making good income. They live a good lifestyle, live a good home. They go on good vacation. And then years ago, John sits down and says, and shares openly with a few people around him, including me, and says, I feel like God has created me and has put me in this position to do more than just be an ear doctor and to live in a nice neighborhood and live that, uh, the great Canadian dream. And in the course of, and he started this whole process I want to say 10 years ago. He said he felt it in university, kind of put it aside, got busy, felt it again when God was calling him. And the calling was to go to mission somehow in some ways. He wasn't sure exactly what it was. But again, he got busy. But he never let that go, and he was very faithful. And then 10 years ago, started that journey, openly shared with us, we prayed for him, and then four years ago, made that decision to go into missions. But here's what he's doing. Six months, he comes to Canada and works six months at the ER, raises enough income for himself to provide for his family. In six months, he goes to northeast China because that's where he can also enter into North Korea and, gives, and serves in that capacity. And although he, can't, although he can't actively share the gospel, every one of the doctors know that he does this because of his faith. Because although you can't publicly proclaim it, over dinner you can share it. And so he's made a commitment. So he has given up that you know, that life that everyone dreams of as we, as we get the higher education and we try to uh, provide for a family. Jeff, in the meantime, has decided that he's just going to continue to let the, And again, I just want to make sure that when I illustrate this passage, please do not place judgment on Jeff. It's not to say all of a sudden Jeff is more holy than Jeff. John is more holy than Jeff in any way. They're both sinners. They're both good people. They both have families. In fact, Jeff, I have seen being very generous with what he has. But his life has just been filled as a doctor, as an ER doctor making good income. And his mind is filled with, where, is, where am I going to golf next? Am I going to Scotland for my next golfing event with my other doctors? How do I upgrade my home? I drive a really nice car. I have a certain clothing. What more can I do? And so he has just ended up enjoying the life and has ended up being comfortable and lives a very convenient and comfortable life. And it's not because, again, that Jeff hasn't been exposed to who God is. And it's not because Jeff is any, you know, worse than who John is. But he hasn't taken the time to reflect. And I remember, you know, just throwing it out one time. So do you believe this is God's calling for you? If it is, great. There's nothing wrong. There are, for the record, there are many, many millionaires and billionaires, Christians, who are probably doing a lot more than we give them credit for. And we judge them too much because we're so influenced by all these social justice things that we see that the minute that a certain Christian is a certain lifestyle, we start judging them in that point. So that's not the point of this illustration. But the difference between John and Jeff is he's taken the time, that John has taken the time to consider his purpose and calling and has made a conscious decision and has made a decision to serve God in some public capacity in addition to what he does on a personal level and corporately worshiping. Jeff has taken the time, or not the time, but gotten caught up in this world. And, and Jeff could have been a school teacher, he could have been a plumber, he could have been whatever other profession that he has. But Jeff has gotten so immersed in the life that he's living, in the comfortable life that he's living. When I've asked him the question, he just kind of threw me off. So, I, you know, I go to church. I love God. I give. I tithe regularly. What's, I said, no, that's not the point. I'm not getting at that, Jeff. Do you feel a sense this is where God has asked you to be? And I think just didn't want to deal with that at the time and just kind of pushed me aside. So as the gospel relates to your life and the life that you are living today, did God call you to a life of busyness is what I'm trying to get at. So forget the profession. Did God call you to a life of busyness? Did he create you so you can live in this wonderful country, receive a good education, find a decent job, have the freedom to dine out at good restaurants, have a good company of friends that you can meet up with on weekends. 
to be able to pay a small subscription to Netflix so you can watch a movie at your convenience. And for those of you who are married, come home to a nice warm meal, have the cutest children around you, and then come out a day out of the week for a few hours to worship. Is that the purpose and calling that you feel that God has created you for, to live out the second creation? Or did he create you for something more? How do you view any acts of service or ministry, whether it be at a church or in your community? Is it an obligation that we do to check off another religious duty that we need to do? So I'm going to end today's message with the story of Esther. All of you are familiar with the story of Esther. The story occurs during the time of King Xerxes, who is a Persian king. And his claim to fame is that he conquered the Greek Empire, the most powerful nation at that time. And he had a queen whose name was Vashti, Queen Vashti. And if you know anything about kings back then, I mean, king was equivalent to God. When the king says, do this, there is no question. And he can choose to kill or allow any person to live at that time. And so Queen Vashti must have been one of the most beautiful women in the world. First of all, A, he had his choice of woman. And so she must have been beautiful. Because in this passage, it writes that he wanted to show off Queen Vashti to all his guests. So he calls her and says, hey, Queen Vashti, he tells one of his men, bring my queen out because I want to show all my guests from other nations how beautiful of a wife that I have. Queen Vashti tells the, the, the advisor, tell King Xerxes I'm too busy. I'm not coming out. I've got my life to live. I mean, I, I think she must have been a, a real earliest feminist at that time, standing up. So King Xerxes gets really angry and he calls all his counselors just because of that one small thing. You talk about a megalomaniac, an egotistical guy, everything centered around him. He says, guys, what can I do? My queen isn't listening to me. I wanted to show her off. And she said no to me, the king, the conqueror of all nations, of the Middle East, of the Greek Empire. People from all nations bow to me. And this woman has said no. What do I do? And all these wise men around them, they're so wise, they say, get another queen. And so what does he, what does he do? He goes, let's go find another queen. So he sends men out across his empire, searching every province, and they find the most beautiful woman in every place. And Esther happens to be one of them. Mordecai, her uncle, happens to hear the news about king looking for another queen. And he says, Esther. And Esther grew up, uh, she lost her parents at a young age. And so Mordecai, her uncle, raised her up, and, and she was a beautiful young girl. And so Mordecai dresses her up, sends her among the group, and she wins him over out of the thousands of women that they have collected from across his kingdom. She stands out and she becomes his queen. And she now, from being an orphan without parents, living a decent life with her uncle Mordecai, who does have audience periodically with the king, becomes this powerful woman. And she is now set for life. Then Mordecai hears the bad news that one of king's officials is going to create an edict that will destroy and annihilate every Jew in his Persian empire. And he sends a message to Esther to say, Esther, are you aware your husband is going to kill and exterminate every Jew in his empire? We need your help. And then... How does Esther reply? Then Esther spoke to, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to, Esther speaks to Mordecai's friend who relays that message. All the king's officials, let me go back. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman, so this is her response to Mordecai, who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned the king has but one law, that they are to be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words report to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. What does that mean? God's will will be done. You know what? His will will be done. He's not going to let his people 
get, you know, exterminated from the earth. You just kind of miss out on that experience of experiencing God's provision and God's grace and mercy. That's what he's saying. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, and this is the key word, and who knows, or key phrase, and who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And so who knows that God has raised you and brought you into the place that where you are today for a time as this. Or will we become like Queen Esther, afraid and fearful that if I somehow rock the boat, I'm going to lose my position. I'm going to lose my convenience. I'm going to lose all that I have because I had nothing before. And I don't want to risk or chance it. And that God is saying, who knows? Why have I put you into a place where you are today? Whether you find yourself at a really high level in some capacity or whether you think you are in a lower level, whatever level you may be from your perspective, that God has called you for a second chance and that you are born again for this time and this place. And will we miss that opportunity of what God has called you to because we've become so busy with making ends meet? And have we really taken the time of what it means to truly worship God in serving him somehow in some capacity? We need more Christian educators who aren't afraid to speak out in education if there are things that are being taught against God's purpose and will. We need more Christian politicians who won't compromise their convictions to one another vote. We need more Christian businessmen and businesswomen who will work with such integrity and ethics that even if it meant that they would lose a business, that they will give that up to be true to their faith. We need more Christian men and women in every facets of this community and society that somehow we can be a light and salt to this world. Because I do believe that every one of us were given second chances. Yes, for our salvation, but I think more than just that. Has God afforded you the present life you live for you to live the way that you are today? Or has he called you for something more? And how are you serving him? And again, this isn't just a call to fill in the gaps for the ministries in this church. But how has he called you and where has he called you to serve him. If I can ask the praise team to come up to prepare for the song, a song of response. If I can ask each and every one of us just to just close our eyes and just take some time to reflect on the things I've shared with you. How do I grow in my faith? Am I being faithful to God in my personal devotion to him on a daily basis? Am I faithful to corporate worship, understanding that no church is perfect out there? Am I committed to somehow living my life of service and in ministry beyond these four walls of the church and in our home? I'm going to ask for you to take about a minute to reflect on those questions. this time in prayer and then after prayer if there are any questions I can take up the questions and after that um, the praise team will lead us uh, into a response song so father we thank you for this worship and father we come here to worship you in spirit and truth we honor you we revere you we come not because this church is convenient for us we don't come here because we just have friends here but we come to worship you and you alone Teach us what it means to worship you in spirit and in truth. Help us struggle with those two words, Lord. When you commanded the Samaritan woman and told her that a time is coming and has now come, that God is looking for worshipers who are going to worship in spirit and truth. Help us to define what that means for us. And once having defined that, to be faithful.
and to truly come to you, not to attend, but to worship. Father, we also want to live our lives according to your calling and your purpose, not just my passion, but your purpose. Lord, do you just, have you called us to so that we can be the best doctors that we can be at the hospitals where we work in? Have you called us so that in the way you equipped us to be doctors, that you've called us to places that don't have doctors and to serve you over there, whatever it may be, Lord, whatever position, wherever in life that we have, we want to reflect upon us, the fact that we're born again, that we know you in our youth, that we live with the Holy Spirit, that we don't get so busy that we miss you and we don't hear your voice, but that we take time to think about why did you call us, Lord? Yes, for our personal salvation. But what else have you called us for, Lord? Is it for a time such as this? And what is that time? And what is it? So Holy Spirit, we ask you to just come and just speak to us clearly that there may be no doubts or uncertainty, but we may know with clarity that you are God, you love us. You sent your only son, Jesus Christ, to die for us on the cross, that we may be born again. And in this new life that we have, that we may somehow live our lives to give you honor and glory and to see what that means. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, um, no question. I can't see from here. My eyes are getting bad. Are there any questions? Anyone text? No. Okay. So then I'm going to ask just the, uh, the praise team to lead us into a time of uh, response.